Hello there. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and today in the studio, I have Brother John Mills with me. Let him say hello. Hello. And we're going to have a bit of a follow-up conversation from the Sunday school lesson that he brought to us yesterday. And it was a Tuesday Sunday school lesson, but that's all right. We're going to have a conversation about Jesus at the temple because there's a lot of really fascinating things that happen there. I want us to begin with a prayer, and then I'm going to have John read the scripture, and we'll get straight into our discussion. So let us bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we're assembled together, Lord, wherever we may be across the, the internet airwaves, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your wisdom, your strength, your encouragement. Lord, as we come to study your scriptures, may we learn something that we deeply apply to our lives and not just look at it passively. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, Brother John, would you mind reading us the scripture that you looked at yesterday? And then we'll get to some discussion topic. The text is the Gospel of John, chapter 2 verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. All right, so we're going to be talking about the temple, and I've got some different pictures here. And for those who are watching this, I pulled up a picture of some ruins. This is from Israel, from a dig site that was opened up in 2019, so just last year. And right here is some places nearby the temple, and John just read through all that scripture where they had the, the money changers and things of that nature. And at this dig site, they found little wax stamps, and I've got some pulled up. And these are from the time of the first temple, Solomon's temple, before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem. And the reason why I bring up these little wax stamps is because people are only allowed to go so far in the temple. John, you mentioned that yesterday. And it's kind of neat to see these wax stamps which exist. They're kind of like tickets at a fair. You get different colored tickets and things like that that tell you how far you can go. Well, depending on what wax stamp you had, it would show how clean you were and how far you could go into the temple. So that's just a little neat piece of history to look at. But now I want us to get into a discussion about some things you brought up yesterday. In the program that we had at this, looking at the the Sunday school lesson here, one of the questions that you opened up with was, why do you go to church? And one of the things that I realized is that when you don't have a good answer to that question, and a lot of people have a difficult time answering that question, why do I go to church? You know, it's something which is not so easy as people might assume. But when you don't know why it is that you go to church, it is easy for bad things to creep in. 
And that's exactly what happened here in this text. A lot of bad things creeped in. Um, I don't know if you want to respond to that or let me get a little bit further in this. Well, I think you're right. I think, you know, a lot of times people find themselves going to church because it's just, you know, kind of what they're used to doing or what yeah. is expected of them. Yeah, and so. it's easy for the purpose of worship to shift right. when you yeah. don't know why you're going to church. You mentioned yesterday that the section of the temple where the Gentiles could come, it had turned into a chaotic marketplace. And I love that particular phrasing that you have there because chaos itself is largely a metaphor for sin. Yeah. Um, but this time it goes from being just a metaphor for sin to it's literally sin. It, it actually makes that transition into being a literal sinful thing. And what you find happening there is when people don't really understand why they worship God, they're actually turning God's order, something which is set apart to bless people where people could worship God. They're twisting that into something chaotic. They're twisting it into something sinful. They take the place where the Gentiles could come in. And if we remember, the whole reason that the Jewish people were set apart and going all the way back to Abraham is this idea that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all people. They have deliberately taken a place of God's house of worship and twisted it into something which is fundamentally opposed to who they are as a people and why God set them apart in the first place. I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. That was kind of an observation I made. Um, well, I, I think that's true. You know, the, the chaos that was there uh, represented, you know, not just the, the physical condition of the place, but the spiritual condition of the place. Sure. And, you know, I, I think back to, you know, Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees where he says, you know, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of all this. From the outside, the temple was very grand, you know. Yeah. But inside, well, you know what animals do. Animals yeah. use the bathroom everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. If you've ever been to a barnyard. So on the outside, you have this beautiful temple, and inside you've got all of these animals, and they're doing everything that animals always do. And so, yeah, you're right. There, there's a big, uh, you know, contradiction between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing you brought up yesterday was the the multiple instances of Jesus cleansing the temple. And there are certainly people who will try to consolidate those into one and say that there's just some issue with word of mouth when the gospels are being recorded and things of that nature. But I like that you made an argument that no, these actually are two distinct times. And one of the reasons I I, I like that you have asserted that is is simply history does repeat itself. I mean, you look throughout Scripture, you find Abraham does some of the same sins multiple times. His children do the same sin, like the whole deal with lying about your wife, that she's really your sister. You find people doing it. But we also know this happens in our personal lives, where it seems like people repeatedly go to the same folly over and over again. And I'm pretty sure um, there's a proverb about this in Proverbs 26.11, um, about fools returning to their folly or something like that. Um, but it's, it's definitely a truth that people return to the same problems. But specifically with the temple, this is a, it's a very serious thing. This isn't just somebody, you know, they haven't finally disciplined themselves. This is the, the place that really should be the architectural pinnacle of Jerusalem. People look to it. It's an image. It's a symbol for God's holiness. And it is being corrupted at this deep level. Um, and to that point, you were talking about that that it is two distinct instances, and that kind of reminds me that history does repeat itself. Another thing you brought up yesterday was how we have a lot of people 
when they ask the question, why do we go to church? And you see things like the worship wars creep up and things of that nature. I have lived long enough, and this would be a fun conversation between you and I, being a little bit of different generations, where I have seen people who have kind of pushed back against hymns and Southern gospel, even though what they were calling hymns were not really hymns, they were actually Southern gospel. Um, but I've seen them latch on to the contemporary movement but start behaving the same way the Southern Gospel people did about what they have and be extremely hostile to anything that's not the contemporary music. And and, and I've seen that cycle within about um, just my lifetime of being in the church shift to where you've got that same mentality. And I think that does go back to the fact that we really do live in a day and age where there is superficial faith, where people... They're not capable of making the distinction between why am I here and what is God doing in my life and how do I truly worship? What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I think I think you're on to something there. We get used to worshiping in our own way. And, you know, really, a lot of times it's what we grew up with. Yeah. That to us is church. It's how you worship. And. When we make worship about us and whether it appeals to us or not, when we start worshiping in a new way, we come out and we say, I just didn't get anything out of that lesson. I didn't yeah. get anything out of that sermon. I didn't get anything out of that music. Well, the whole point is not for us to get something out of it. Yeah. It's for us to worship God. Yeah. And so, you know, when we persist in wanting things the way we've always had them, you know, the, the entire focus is off. And especially if we do it to the point where we discourage other people from worshiping with us. Right. Because we won't let them worship in any way that's meaningful to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's really the, the heartbreak of it. Yeah, a big problem comes there. Let me present this other idea with you. Um, and I'm going to say one of the things that I think has changed about my theological perspective of how God reveals things is I have come to a, a point where I believe God does reveal through tradition. But I, I say that with the caveat of we have to clarify what tradition is. And we as a people have not done a good job of distinguishing the difference between nostalgia and tradition. If I were to call something tradition, and the definition I've been using for tradition is something that two people could have experienced throughout their life, but have lived hundreds of years apart. So not something that may have been handed to you from your grandparents, but something that somebody living four or 500 years ago, they could have experienced in the church, and then you can fully experience that as well. Something like the Lord's Supper, or maybe even something that's um, more financially stewardship, like giving of tithes and offerings. Things that have existed through the generations of the church that wasn't just directly handed from one person to another. Something like the reading of the word, the, the reasons why we come together and assemble the way we do on Sunday. Those things which are clearly Christian traditions which have lasted for thousands of years. Um, and I just want to throw this question to you that I think we have made a mistake of not being able to distinguish nostalgia which is basically what I grew up with, the specific styles, the colors, the feel, the vibe, the more emotional, superficial characteristics, and then those deep-rooted things, things like receiving the elements, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, hearing that revelation of through Scripture, having that moment of prayer, the way that we interact with one another, things that are actual Christian traditions and then things which are just nostalgia. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you've got a good point there. You know, 
uh, we grow up to expect church to be a certain way. And you're right. What we think of as traditions may be something that's very limited. You know, it may be something very limited in time that happened only, you know, for the last 20 years. Yeah. It may be something that's very limited in space, you know, in location, something that we happen to do in our particular area, but it's not found in other parts of the world, you know, and especially in the United States, because we are such a young country, really. You know, we we think, oh, you know, we're 200-something years old, but that's nothing compared to, you know, you think of a country like England where they go back centuries and centuries. And so, yeah, I think you're right. We grow up, and a, a lot of it's fashioned by our childhood. Sure, you know, absolutely. We, we get used to doing church in a certain way when we're kids. Yeah. And that, for us, becomes the way that you do church. And you're right, that's not really tradition. You know, I don't think you can call it tradition— Tradition is valuable because it stood the test of time. Right, right. You know, and so... It wasn't just someone's nostalgia right, that got wiped away right, when the right. new interest came. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if we're really going to find something of value, we have to make sure that it has, you know, stood the test of time. It's not just something that's, you know... Sure, and the reason why I bring this up is those that were there at the temple... They, they had stopped asserting the true traditions of the temple, the whole reason why they were there. I mean, we already mentioned they had forgot that the whole reason God goes to Abraham and Sarah and wants to set them apart is so they can be a blessing to all other nations. They've then got to the point where they, they basically say, well, we're, we're going to do things to you know, privilege ourselves and those who are within the circle, um, and we're going to pat our pockets in doing so, and we're not going to pay attention to the true calling God has placed on our lives. And... One of the ways that, that this really trickles down to our modern day and age is that when we don't have a good answer to that question, why do you go to church, if people don't distinguish the difference between nostalgia and tradition, and, and we unfortunately live in a day and age where a lot of people aren't very informed on true Christian traditions, that's not something you need to go to university for. That, that All that really requires is, is being faithful to an orthodox um, Christian community that's interested in biblical orthodoxy. Um, but there are a lot of people who, who want to erase the true tradition with the nostalgia. And then you kind of find yourself in a no man's land where people don't really know who they are and they can't answer the question why we go to church at all. And things get even more chaotic and they get further and further away from where God wants us to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. You know, replacing, uh, the tradition with nostalgia. And I think a big part of it is our modern church has become such a consumer-driven thing. Yeah. You know, modern church is big business. Yeah. You know, all of the, the different Bibles that are published, well, some of them were published with very good motives, and yeah. some of them were put out by publishing houses because they needed a way to make money. And, and you know, nostalgia sells. Yeah, it does. And so, you know, the business community is going to give us what we will buy. And a lot of times, you're right, it's it's not tradition, it's nostalgia. And you, you really see that trickle into the music side of the church. Yeah. And the motives for writing Christian music is different than than writing something which you're not planning on getting royalties on. Like yeah. when you preach a sermon, you don't plan on getting royalties for that. Um but back to the the colluders or the the colludos there in the the money changers in the temple, a couple of other things I wanted to bring up. Um, 
this chaos, this sin that has infected the temple. Jesus comes in. He's not passive about it. He's very clearly wanting to assert the true purpose of the temple. And he doesn't want people to just have some superficial faith. He wants them to have something which is very deep, where they can truly be blessed, where they can truly interact with God and walk with him. But I find it fascinating that the experts, the religious leaders there of the day, they did have the power to fix this. They could have said no to this money changing in the temple. And you you brought out something in your Sunday school lesson that was really fascinating. Because it's almost as if they come to Jesus to criticize him doing it, not necessarily because he got the money changers out, but kind of, why did you choose to do it? What was your authority? Why, why did you go there? And I think one of the reasons they were of that mindset is because the common person, the common Jewish person might look at them and say, well, why didn't the priests do this yeah. yesterday? Why didn't they do this 10 years ago? And so it kind of hurts the credibility of the priest for not taking the, the spiritual, you know, when, when it was their time to go up to bat, why didn't they step up to the plate and say, all right, we're going to clean out this problem? So there's kind of that angle of it, too, that I really hadn't thought of till you mentioned that yesterday. I don't know if you want to respond to that or not. The priest didn't kind of like being called on the carpet that they weren't keeping their own house in order. But, yeah, I, you know, I think that's, that's certainly a big part of it. When Jesus drives out the money lenders, you're right. It's it's an implied criticism of those that let it get in this situation to to start with. And I I think you're right. There would have been a number of of the common people who would have said, you know, this needed to happen a long time ago. You know, why did you let it? You know, or why you didn't just let it happen? You encouraged it. You brought it about. Yeah. You know, just just to make money. But the one hope in all of this is that Jesus, he comes to to redeem. He comes to give life and to bless and ultimately to die for those who didn't deserve it by their own own yeah. merit, certainly, um, including those who were the religious leaders and the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Jesus. He, he wants to forgive them. He wants them to have their hearts and minds changed as well. Well, Brother John, I thank you for this conversation and I thank you for the wonderful Sunday school lesson that you brought yesterday. And let's go ahead and close in prayer, and we'll say goodbye to those of you who are watching online. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and study your word. As we come to study this passage out of John, Lord, I think that, that just wonderful things have been revealed to us through the scriptures. If you would just come and open our hearts and minds that, that we could be blessed, Lord. We thank you for the many blessings that you've already given us, including those which we do not see, those which we are unaware of. Lord, just be with us and guide us through all that we do. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And on that note, God love you and have a blessed day.